Welcome to today's Hubbard and O'Brien Economics Podcast. We're recording this one on Friday, June 12th, 2020. I'm Tony O'Brien. I'm a professor of economics at Lehigh University. Joining me, as always, is my co-author, Glenn Hubbard, who is a professor of finance and economics at Columbia University. We're very happy to have joining us today, Kim Holder. Kim is a lecturer in economics at the University of West Georgia, where she is the director of the Center for Economic Education and Financial Literacy. Glenn and I are excited that Kim has been collaborating with Mike Ryan in preparing video versions of the Solve Problems feature for the new eighth edition of the Hubbard and O'Brien textbook. Kim, Glenn, how are you both today? Great, thanks. Doing wonderful. Kim, we've been starting these podcasts by asking our guests about how the sudden transition to teaching online in the spring semester went and whether they learned things from this experience they might use if they're teaching online courses this fall. I know you've had years of experience in teaching online traditional classroom and hybrid courses, so maybe the transition was a little easier for you? It was slightly easier. I'll admit that because of a long experience in online education, both on the student side of things, as well as teaching online hybrid and face-to-face, I find it really easy to swap back and forth between the different methods of instruction. So I do think I had a little bit of an easier time than other people in that transition, although of course, as, as a world, we were struggling with something that we had never faced before. But I still found ways to learn new things. And so a couple of things were implemented early on that I think would be easily replicated with other people and in their classes. So one thing I did is at my university, I formed a teaching triage group. So through either our learning management system or through social media, whatever your university is most comfortable with, finding a way to really get people together very quickly and very informally, not through a Center for Teaching and Learning or not through some official mechanism, but a way to have a conversation and to, just like an emergency room triages a patient when they come in, to address a problem quickly, that's something we didn't have before. And so just on a whim, because it was something I needed, I created it, and it's been very, very useful during this time. For me, one thing I would do differently for my classes going forward that I personally learned in my classes is doing a survey and asking what technology students have access to consistently and reminding them that I'm there for them, which sounds like no big deal, but ended up being a very important part. So I asked all my students two questions. What technology did they have? So what hardware, what software, what internet capability did they have? Were they working? Were they not working? Just so I had a feel for where they were at. And then I asked them, is there anything else you want to tell me? Do you need me to be a mom for a minute for you? And I was stunned at the responses that I got from that of just people needing kind of a listening ear. And I would do that again in my future courses. I think that's a great idea, Kim, because, you know, so often what students value from us as teachers is that background and advice, not literally just the content that we're doing. You know, you mentioned you've, of course, had a lot of experience already in online teaching 
Is there something about this uh, new Zoom setup that got set up after COVID-19 that might give teaching opportunities? So a couple that come to mind uh, might be breaking the students up into groups on Zoom for discussions and then coming back with you, assuming, of course, they've actually read the material, which sometimes they have, sometimes they haven't. And then second, there's also the possibility of bringing in a speaker for a short amount of time that might have been hard to do in the physical world, but getting a colleague to Zoom in for 20 minutes isn't so hard. Are there things like that or others that you've used to try to mix it up for the students? Absolutely. I think one thing that has really happened for universities and places like we are, so my university is situated on the Georgia-Alabama line, and you know we're not in the heart of Atlanta or the heart of New York City, and so it is a little more difficult sometimes to get the perfect guest speaker. We, we have big industries in Atlanta, but to come out to where we are, it's a little difficult. We don't have traffic, but you might get stuck behind um, a, a tractor on a, on a two-lane road. And so we do have to understand in terms of the opportunity cost of bringing a speaker out, that it's much easier for a place like Georgia Tech or Emory that's in the heart of downtown Atlanta to get a speaker, whereas we can't. And so for us, it's a really unique unique opportunity to, as more people get more comfortable with these technologies, to get outside resources into our classes that we weren't able to get before. Um, For Zoom, I I love the breakout rooms. I think it's a really fascinating tool. I've used it for trivia teams that I've helped with. So I have colleagues and they play. So I've organized events for them. And the breakout rooms are really elegant solution. They work really well. They can be assigned in advance or you can mix people up and re-scramble them and put them in different rooms. So just like you would do a think, pair, share in a traditional setting, that can all take place via Zoom if if you want it to. And so I think the technology and the access to technology allows for a lot of things that we don't traditionally think of. The same for other platforms as well. Um, I know that Google Meet, my university uses Google Meet quite a bit, and it does live captioning. So I think in terms of accessibility services, this is something that's really helpful for students that they wouldn't get in a traditional classroom. That's great. And what about grading? Anything different in this new world as opposed to either your traditional teaching or even your traditional online teaching? A couple of things happened with grading during the, the, the start of the pandemic that I think we will continue to see going forward. Um, so even as solutions and things are happening, I still think it's something that we're going to have these uh, waves or ebbs and flows. And so we're going to have to really stay flexible. And one thing I've found that seems to help a little bit with grading and to kind of ease anxiety as well as grabbing students' attention who often tend to be most responsive to grades. So there's a problem with an assignment and you can send out announcements. I do announcements within my learning management system. I do announcements on social media. I use direct messaging tools like Remind. 
but still the number one way for me to get a response quickly from a student is to enter a zero in the grade book <laughs> and suddenly I hear back from them. So I have been using the grade feedback tool more than ever. Um, I go in early before an assignment is due and I pre-grade. Now this obviously only works in smaller classes so it works well in the summer or in small sections but I pre-grade and things that are just not ready I put in a zero but I put in very specific steps of what to do as well as when I'll accept it for a grade and under what restrictions I guess and those notes are for the students so that they can learn very clearly what my expectations are but honestly, they're for me too, so that I can remember what I promised um, when I go back to grade it again. And it, it is more work, but I find that the quality of work has really increased. And I, I do have to be very specific with students and remind them that it's not punitive, that I'm really there to try to help them learn how to master the course. And so it's just a early alert system, if you will, but using the grade book as that, as that method. Um, and so for me, a lot of parts of my course are automated so that students get grades quickly. We, we deal with a really impatient generation right now who want instantaneous information, but you can also use that to your advantage to help advance your students. What's uh, going to be like in the fall this year in terms of class? Do you know yet whether you're going to be face-to-face? -face or? Well, we're situated in Georgia, and Georgia's been in the news a lot lately. Um, we are very much open for business, and I don't really have an opinion on the, the rightness or wrongness of that. Uh, the county that I'm in, um, that I live in, that my home is in, it has a very low number of cases, and so we're, like I said, we're a rural county. Um, I live outside of the county that my school system, my school is in, but we have a lot of distance. Um, my home sits on 10 acres. You know, there's, there aren't neighbors just on top of us. So it is very different than a city, but I get nervous because with that rural living also comes with the fact that we don't have a hospital that has an ICU unit in it. So we would have to go to another county to get medical care. So I think that when we think about what fall will look like, all indications from our university system, which we're part of a, you know, 32 um college and university system at the state level. All signs are saying that we are 100% open for business in the fall, and I respect that, but I also think that we're all very intelligent people, and so we have to be ready to be flexible at a moment's notice and not have the students suffer for it. Well, it's interesting. So it sounds like the pandemic is removed locally from students' lives? It's not something they've experienced up close as opposed to the news? I think it depends on where the students live. So for students who live, most of our students come from kind of a region closely around the university, but we also have people who come from other states. And so it really depends on what their home life is like. For students of ours who went back to downtown Atlanta and Fulton County, or to South Georgia, where they had a large number of breakouts and cases, 
then that they may be taking it a lot more seriously. I know when I go across the county line, I see a lot more people wearing masks and um, taking precautions. Um, but at the same time, people locally, you know, sports have started back up, extracurricular activities have started back up. And so it's very different. It's this case by case basis. And this kind of goes back to what I think happens in the classroom that each person is very much an individual and has their own story and their own set of circumstances. And you don't know what's happening in the background. And so you have to design in such a way that it can be responsive to all those people's needs. When I was in school, I was a non-traditional student. I had a toddler and a baby. I worked my way through school. And so I tended to do a lot of online work because it was the most flexible for me. And so while things like online change things for some people, it creates a lot of opportunities for other people. And I think it's really important that we see the good alongside um, some of the things that are happening. Well, it's really interesting. I'm still stuck on the 10 acres part. That would be a third the size of the whole Columbia campus in New York. So 10 acres sounds like a lot. What about topics? With the pandemic, are there topics you might put more weight on than you might have otherwise or, or use them as a wedge to get students to learn more about our favorite subject of economics? I'd say yes and no. Uh, and I know that's such an economist answer. That's our standard <laughs> answer. So on the one hand, on the other hand. <laughs> that's right, exactly. So I personally find everything that's going on just absolutely fascinating. I think that watching in real time things like shortages and incentives and you know what happens if you change unemployment benefits and then what are the secondary effects of that, I think it's amazing and I love it and I can't get enough of it. I think that watching in my neck of the woods, flour is in very short supply. We're all baking and I haven't been able to reliably find bread flour or yeast in months. I find that fascinating because I talk with my friends up in Boston and people aren't really baking up there in the same way that they are down here. And she's like, what are you talking about? There's a flour shortage. And I was like, yeah, here there is. I'm special ordering flour on the internet. And I think it's really cool that King Arthur flour, who had a big surge, that they re- package their flour from five pound paper bags that are leaky and not easily mailable to three pound plastic sealable bags that allow them to direct ship to customers. The econ behind that in terms of the supply chain is just lovely and it, I can't get enough of it. However, in the classroom, again, because we don't know what set of circumstances the students come to us from, I'm personally not quite ready to have a whole unit or chapter on the pandemic. And I've watched people who think that that's a great idea, and I respect their ability to have a different opinion. But just like when Katrina hit, it was not time to talk about natural disasters in the classroom. When I first started teaching, we were in the middle of the Great Recession, and it was not the time to talk about, you know, all these great lessons in unemployment because the people who are sitting in my class were either unemployed themselves 
or both of their parents were and they were losing their house. And so it was a little too soon. And I think that fall may be a time to let students talk about it, but not really have it come from the teacher directing that conversation and opening it up, but instead to talk more in generalities about econ lessons and then let the students apply it to the things they're comfortable with. Well, that's great. Is there anything you wish you would have done right after the pandemic in teaching that you didn't do, whether it's a teaching style, a topic, a way of talking to students? I wish that I had had the time or the bandwidth to schedule a virtual appointment with every single student at the very beginning. I think that people were in an emergency mode, so I don't know that I would have gotten that, but by the end of the semester, students were ready to have virtual calls and virtual office hours with me. And I personally found that we were able to make big leaps and big jumps that we really couldn't via email and text messaging and the back and forth and the grade book. And so I don't know if I would mandate or require it because I don't love those things. I always like to leave it back up to the student, but I wish I would have found a way to either personally pin a letter to every student or, um, or schedule a specific appointment slot for each student. And I, I just think they and I gained so much out of that when we were able to meet, but, but people tend to not take that first step. And so I wish I would have pushed a little more on that because they opted into, in my case, I was teaching hybrid courses, but they opted into this back and forth. Sometimes we're online, sometimes we're face to face, and we shifted to a hundred percent online course. And so when I look at my evaluations and feedback at the end, I end up with people who say this topic really should have been taught face to face and they feel like they missed something and they really didn't, but it doesn't matter if they feel like it, it's true to them. And so I think they probably, there's a few students who I, I feel like maybe needed a little more handholding and they didn't get it. And I'm just the kind of person that that eats away at me a little bit. Well, I can see why you're a great teacher. Thanks, Kim. Kim, I had a, a question about assuming that you'll be teaching on campus this fall, it seems likely. Have you thought about how you might change any of the in-class procedures you have? I mean, handouts or, or even maybe how exams are given, anything like that? Absolutely. That's, that's all I think about all day, every day. <laughs> it's, what, it's what I think many, many of us are trying to figure it out. Um, sometimes we wait on our universities to have the right answer, but as economists, we know that Everybody is going to act from their own place, their own timeline, the, the incentives they face and the costs that they face. And so the university has one set of criteria, but for myself personally, I have my own set. And so it actually makes sense for each of us to kind of take some responsibility and think about 
what we need and what we're willing to do personally. So I've been thinking a lot about it. I believe strongly in using a mask in my personal life. I use it when I go out and run groceries. I use it when I have to have a conversation with somebody. And so I plan to use masks in the fall. So I'm trying to find the perfect mask that allows me to take in enough air to project out um, to a class, as well as something that looks good, like with the outfits and things that I'm wearing. So, you know, a little bit of fashion sense and, and practicality. I've purchased a personal PA system. So there's a portable PA system that has a basically a mic, almost like a lavalier, but a mic that sits um, right at about mask level and comes with a little speaker that's a belt pack. And so just out of pocket in case it's needed, um, instead of waiting until everybody wants them and they're in a shortage, I went ahead and purchased that to make sure that I had some kind of method um, because I don't want to not wear a mask and possibly get somebody sick. So I definitely feel like I should wear a mask, but then I know that people aren't going to be able to hear me. And so you could have a student who, you know, maybe has a slight um, hearing issue and I don't want them to suffer because we're trying to protect ourselves from something that we can't see. I definitely will go handout free for the fall semester. I normally do a lot of handouts and printouts and worksheets. And so I'll be making those all phone or computer friendly by offering kind of a set of choices. So you could download it as a Word document or a Google document or a PDF or an image that you could even write on on your phone. I think that's an important accessibility piece. And I will have a lot of alternative. So one thing that I think is interesting, I don't know what's happening at, at your universities, but if we are all 100% face-to-face and someone gets ill, then we have to adjust deadlines and schedules for that person. And that's totally fine if it's only one person and then you fix it and then we're all back on schedule again. But what I imagine would happen is one person gets sick and then a week and a half later, two people get sick and they're not all on the same schedule. And then three weeks later, a different person gets sick and it's going to be really difficult to keep up with deadlines and keep everybody on the same page. So I'm working to build in alternatives. What are we going to do if somebody can't come to our face-to-face class and is online? What are we going to do if someone's online but can't keep the same schedule? And I think that's a really important problem to solve that actually happens at the course design phase. It doesn't matter what the subject is. It doesn't matter what level it is. But how do we design that in into our course early on? Kim, let me ask you, what sort of strategies do you use when you're building your class? So one strategy that I've been thinking about and working with my classes as I'm kind of redesigning them over the summer is I see a lot of chatter online about people talking about having to design three separate classes. So they have to design a hybrid class, they have to design an online class, and they have to design a face-to-face class because we don't know what's going to happen in the fall. For myself, because I've been lucky enough to teaching all three methods and often in a you know non-tenure track line flexing between those depending upon the needs of the department I tend to build my online class first 
And that is what I dedicate my time to, that every class, no matter what, can be an online class. And it has good design in it. And then if I am hybrid, I take half of those lectures and I deliver them face-to-face. -face. And if I'm fully online, I take all of those lectures and deliver them face-to-face. But it always has all of the information that's online still in the background. And that allows us at a moment's notice to deal with a student athlete who's away on a trip and needs to be caught back up because they're on official university business or somebody who's out sick with a medical excuse or every now and then it snows in Georgia and we have to move online and um, that can catch people off guard. But if you design it where it's kind of this, you know, some people call it resilient design. Um, I just think of it as good design that you have a class that's ready to go and then you shift that face to face. It allows it to be really flexible to respond to anything whether it be a pandemic or it be, um, you know, you end up having to go away for a conference. It's all ready to go instead of waiting on somebody else to solve it for you. And so I found that to be a really easy way to get out of the mindset of I'm suddenly expected to do three times the work for the same pay. Instead, it's just really good and thoughtful design and more efficient on, on the side of the professor. So Kim, the pandemic crisis and the economic policy response has brought issues of basic personal financial management and personal financial literacy to the fore, and I'm sure it catches students' interest. And I know you've been working in this area a long time. What changes do you expect? I think that a lot of our students and alumni, as well as people in the community, are suddenly more interested in economics than ever. At least that's what I've seen casually. I've had a lot more students, alumni, friends, family members reach out to me and say, what do you think about the CARES Act? What do you think about the Federal Reserve Bank? Um, what do you think is the right thing to do on policy issue A, B, or C? And I've recommended a lot of books to other people. I've actually personally shipped out a lot of books to other people and say, you should read this. Um, and I'll go ahead and, and buy it and have it drop shipped to your home. I think it's that important. But it gives us a really unique opportunity to have these conversations. Um, specifically, I, I teach both principles of macroeconomics generally, as well as micro, but mostly macro. And... I also teach personal finance, so consumer economics and financial decision making. And suddenly we see that one thing that kind of happened in this crisis is we realized that people weren't just caught unaware and suddenly had to dip into their emergency fund, but they really had no emergency fund at all. Our, our common theme that we always say is you should have three to six months in an emergency fund to get you through any kind of problems. And I think the one thing the crisis showed to us, which we kind of already had some of the data on, but it really brought it home, is that people really don't even have a week's worth of money set aside to get them through a crisis. And certainly students don't. Um, they're not just living paycheck to paycheck. A lot of times it's day to day. And so it makes us feel like 
personal finance is more important than ever. It's important not only for our students, but it's important for our business owners to make sure that they're fiscally responsible. It's important for our government leaders to make sure that they're not committing us to things that we can't possibly pay off, that it, it's really a a worldwide problem of making sure that we understand not just finance, but the broader theories of economics, because that's what's driving these financial decisions. And so for me, kind of a silver lining on on this cloud that's hanging over us is I feel like econ is more relevant than ever, that these personal finance lessons are more needed than ever. And so the, the econ world is is ready to kind of meet the needs that are, that are being voiced out there. And that, to me, is really exciting. Kim, did you want to mention the names of some of the books that you said were particularly useful? I always, mm-hmm. always recommend Freakonomics. I think it's the most accessible. If you're only going to read one book, it's the most accessible book for someone who is not an econ major. And so I send that out to a lot of people just because it's just because it's an easy read I would say and it shows how the ideas of economics can be applied to any topic under the sun it's a natural conversation starter I really like economics in one lesson by Hazlitt because again it's a small thin book so it's not overwhelming but it gives you a really good grounding into economic ideas. Most recently, with a lot of things that are going on out in the world, um, I've been sending a lot of people some books about like policing, which is another area that econ talks about. So there's a good book called Tyranny Comes Home. And I've been sending that out to people just because it's a way for them to think about these issues. And so what I love about econ and why I pursued it um, as as something I was interested in is it gives you this set of tools that can then be applied to any topic that you're interested in. So it could be about something applied like personal finance, or it could be something large like social welfare, or about the stock market, or about any market for anything. Um, Right now we're really interested in the market for toilet paper and paper towels and masks and gloves and those sorts of things. It can be applied anywhere. And that to me is what makes econ not just timely for right now and not just fascinating, but it makes it persistent and a tool that we need every single person to have access to because it helps them understand the world around them. And so if it's a book here and there or a text message or um, a direct message here and there with people, I'm always willing to have those conversations because I feel like if people understand a little nugget of econ, they come away from it better than they arrived. Great. Uh, Thanks so much, Kim, for joining us today. It was very interesting and also very informative. A reminder that this podcast is now available on iTunes. So if you'd like, you can subscribe and make us part of your podcast feed. And if you're so moved, you can leave us a review. Please also keep checking our blog at hubbardobrieneconomics.com, where we periodically post new content, mostly related to the economics of the COVID-19 pandemic. You can subscribe to the blog to receive email alerts about new posts. 
Thanks again to everyone for joining us for this conversation. We look forward to connecting with instructors and students again on a future Hubbard O'Brien Economics Podcast. We'll see you next time.